Good morning. Thank you for being here. Be careful what you ask for, Steve. Uh, interactive <laughs> is the word of the day. So uh, as a matter of fact, as fate would have it. Um, so what I've been telling people is that uh, I am trying to reproduce myself. And, and I always qualify that with, I don't want to reproduce me, Brian Freeman, because that's a horrible idea. What I'm trying to do is reproduce what I'm doing here, teaching the word of God and learning the word of God so that you can become a disciple and you can learn to get understanding and knowledge out of the scriptures, and then you can reproduce yourselves. And this is exactly how the church grows, right? Um, the New Testament uses the analogy of leaven, right? Yeast, in a good way to represent the kingdom of God. And this idea is that yeast or leaven is very small, insignificant, almost microscopic. You can't really even see it. But slowly over time, it works its way through dough until the entire batch is full of of yeast and it grows and it fills with life and in this case carbon dioxide which makes bread and that's exactly what I want you to do it's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years and God willing 2,000 more if, if that's how long we have on this planet before the, the coming of Christ so what we've been doing here is starting to prep you to become teachers of the word and <clears throat> it is interactive and so today we're gonna go through Hebrews chapters 5 and 6 and I want you as you're going through this to start thinking about how you would understand the text and how you would explain it to others. And so, before we actually read the text, I'm going to ask, and, and again, this might bore you to death because I'm going to, I'm going to do this repetitively over the next few weeks, is I'm going to ask you the kinds of questions that you need to be asking yourself as you go through the Word. And the very first three questions I always ask as I crack open the good book and start reading the Word of God is what? What are the three Four critical questions we ask of the text. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? And when you say who, do I mean name, address, serial number, <clears throat> date of birth, blood type, and, uh, you know, uh, army history? Wouldn't that be nice? It would be, right? <laughs> it would be. In lieu of that, what am I asking? What this is the author. Person? What kind of person? What did you say? The author. Who, who wrote it? What kind of person was it? Was it a Jew, Gentile? Yeah. What kind of person? Because, and, and I kind of made this comment before the class started, every human or person um, themselves and for the group that they are associated with has certain things that they care about. There are certain things they struggle with. Uh, certain things they're interested in. And because of that, their type of person has a lot to do with where they're coming from when they wrote this material. What's the second question we always ask? Who's the audience? Who's the audience? Again, <clears throat> same thing. What kind of people are in the audience? Amen, sister. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and, and you know, it's exactly right. And, and, and again, I like to make this comment that People didn't just have nothing better to do, so they grabbed a piece of papyrus and some ink and started writing. And it just happens that two to 4,000 years later, we have that today. There must have been a really good reason or multiple reasons why they wrote it, and that is the key. Third question, which is what? The why? Why? Why did they write it? Um, <clears throat> These three questions, as you ask, as you read the text, will open it up to you and say, oh, okay, now I see where they're coming from. This isn't just one of those, you know, 365 day of the year Bible questions.
quips that you rip off your calendar that's sitting on your toilet at home that make you feel good. That, that can happen, and it's important that Scripture can make you feel good or encourage you for your day. That's one function of Scripture. But to really understand it, why is it saying what it's saying? I'm going to tell you right now, none of the apostles of Jesus had a Ph.D. in theology. <laughs> um, none of them, right, spent, we think... 20 to 30 years of their life um, in serious doctrinal, theological, historical training before they went out on the road and preached the gospel. What did they have? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> they had Jesus. If you have Jesus and you preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the coming of the kingdom, and the redemptive power that Christ has, then that's what you need to go out and share the word with others. That's it. If you want to understand the material... And you want to understand the word, which, you know, the word in this case is not necessarily the English letters that, that form words and sentences and phrases, but means the ideas or concepts of God that have been handed down over, over millennia, then we want to understand deeply what the word of God is trying to say. And these are the questions we start to ask. Really, once you ask this, and you read, and you pray, you don't really need a PhD in this. You don't really need to, you know have a library, you know, bless my wife's heart for all the books that arrive every day at our house. And she's like, when does this end? And we're running out of space. We need more bookshelves. You don't really actually need to do that. All you need to do is ask some very fundamental questions with prayer and supplication to God to help you to understand the text and reading it every day, every day, until you get a complete picture of the word of God, you'll understand it. At least you'll understand it enough that you can teach it to others. So with that being said, the second piece here is, okay, I see the three questions. I'm going to start thinking about that. Now, as I go through the text, I'm going to identify to myself what are the main issues apparent in the text. This is another thing I'm prepping you for. Every passage in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, has a root conceptual meaning. I'm going to write that down. <clears throat> All of scripture has a root conceptual meaning. What, it, what, what does this mean? It means, what is it really trying to say? The authors who, led by the Holy Spirit, were writing the word of God in the past always had some kind of root issue or idea that they were trying to convey. In some cases, those ideas were expressed literally. The problem is, and yes, a lot of people say, coming from a good place, I always interpret scripture literally unless I have a reason to believe otherwise. I'm going to tell you right now, that's the opposite of the way you should think. Now, this might be the last day you ever come to my class. But here's my case. When you do it that way, you miss the big picture, which is what Jesus was trying to tell you. 95% of the time, Jesus spoke in parable, or in metaphor, or in allegory. He was not a literal person. And in fact, when people pressed him for literalness, what did he tell you? Why are you so dull? What is wrong with you? What is the text really trying to say at its core? That, and always that, 
is something. Sometimes it's something literal. Why don't you just tell me what I want to know? Well, if, if the Bible was literal 100% of the time and just came out and said it, you wouldn't even need to be here. We would all be experts. Go to the store, buy bread, milk, eggs, and candy. That's a literal list. That's easy. I know what that means. But when Jesus tells you that the kingdom of God has come upon you and you need to live a life of faithful devotion to God and obedience and love, then you start to say, well, wait, maybe that isn't so straightforward and I need something like this class. So this is what I want you to do. Identify what is the main root conceptual meaning of the passage or meanings because there will always be many. With that being said, let's read. Good morning. Hebrews chapter 5. And again, I'm going to give you this, uh, this piece too. Beware chapter and verse headings in the Bible. <laughs> Bless their hearts. What the, so, quick history lesson. Scripture started as um, oral um, sayings and knowledge that over time were written down and over time copied and transmitted. Praise the Lord that that's the way it worked because today, 2,000 years after Christ, you have the writings of people who wrote them down. The Gospels written about 20 to 40 to 50 years after Jesus lived. No sooner than that. Gospels were not written any sooner than 20 to 30 years after Christ was resurrected. Paul's letters probably written about 10 to 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. So even then, you see that this whole piece here happened for a while. Where am I going with this? What I'm going is that um, <clears throat> there was never any titles. There was never any chapters or verses applied to it. It was just a letter. I mean, how many times have you written an email to someone? Just think, some email that you wrote to a friend, an impassioned plea to a friend to, to know the word of God, maybe, God willing, that email will be kept, printed out, uh, maybe stored on a server, and a thousand years later, they still have it and they're circulating it because someone wanted to know the true meaning of Christ and the gospel. Well, you didn't have chapters and verses in your email. <laughs> Um, you didn't have it in your letter that you wrote to, to your aunt or to your loved one. A thousand years after Paul wrote his epistles, people in the Middle Ages started to realize that they needed references to be able to go back to the text later and to, to cross-reference it and say, when I'm talking about Hebrews, you know, what part of Hebrews am I talking about? So some very smart people in the Middle Ages went through a lot of work to break up the scripture that we had into chapters and verses. Sometimes their attempt makes a lot of sense. In the case of Hebrews, it makes little sense. Chapter 5 essentially is broken right into the middle of an argument about the priesthood of Jesus. And so I just want you today to kind of remember, again, the literal thing can kind of throw you. Don't worry about the chapter and verse headings. Once we start getting into 5, it'll seem like we just picked up in the middle of a conversation. You did. Don't let it throw you. Focus on what you think the core conceptual meaning is. Okay, that's, that's the whole reason I went on that rant. So I would like can we just start a person who can... 414? You can, and I think that's an excellent idea. Let's do 414. Okay. I love you. <laughs> and then you can read through 5, and what is that in the end? 514. Okay. Look at that. It's like poetry. Okay. Go ahead. All right. 
Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has gone into heaven, let us hold on to the faith we have. For our high priest is able to understand our weaknesses. When he lived on earth, he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Let us, then, feel very secure that we can come before God's throne where there is grace. There we can receive mercy and grace to help us when we need it. Every high priest is chosen from among other people. He is given the work of going before God for them to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Since he himself is weak, he is able to be gentle with those who do not understand and who are doing wrong things. Because he is weak, the high priest must offer sacrifices for his own sins and also for the sins of the people. To be a high priest is an honor, but no one chooses himself for this work. He must be called by God as Aaron was. So also Christ did not choose himself to have honor of being a high priest, but God chose him. God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And in another scripture, God says, You are a priest forever, a priest like Melchizedek. While Jesus lived on earth, he prayed to God and asked God for help. He prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and his prayer was heard because he trusted God. Even though Jesus was the Son of God, he learned obedience by what he suffered. And because his obedience was perfect, he was able to give eternal salvation to all who obey him. In this way, God made Jesus a high priest, a priest like Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to understand. By now you should have been teachers, but you still need someone to teach you again the first lessons of God's message. You still need the teaching that is like milk. You are not ready for solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still a baby and knows nothing about right teaching, but solid food is for those who are grown up. They have practiced in order to know the difference between good and evil. Who wrote this? A Jew. Why? And, and again, when you, and I'm, I'm also a scientist, so you know, I'm doubly screwed, I guess. All right, woo! I'm a science teacher. Good for you, sweetheart. Excellent. Well, now there's two of us, so you're really in trouble. Uh, when I ask you to answer your questions, I want empirical evidence to back up your claim. What I mean by that is I want you to show me exactly from the text what you think it is, is the proof for your claim, not I feel this or I feel that. Feeling is fine. You're going to start with the empirical piece. What evidence do you have that a Jew wrote this? Well, first of all, they talk about the priestly system in okay. Israel. They talk about Aaron being the uh, called by God, and Aaron was basically the first priest. Okay. Kind of, you know, sort yep. of. And then also Melchizedek. And no one really other than Jews would really yep. reference this is a, those this is a This is a Hebrew or Judaic priestly topic. You just said that there is quotes from what? Oh, there's quotes from, the old from Psalms. From the Hebrew Bible. Now, <clears throat> you say Psalms as if it's, you know what that is. Or, you know, you might say Genesis. When we talk about Melchizedek, we'll talk about Genesis. To you, you've already kind of taken it for granted that that is your scripture. If you are writing to a non-Jew or a non-Christian, they're going to be like, I don't even know what the word Psalms means. What are you talking about? All of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Hebrew Bible. In the period of the first century, if I were to ask some, a Jew about the Bible, what are they thinking? They're thinking what you call the Old Testament. Yeah. And probably, depending on what group you're talking about, if I'm talking about Sadducees, the Bible is how many books? It's just the law. If you're talking about a, a Pharisee, how many books are we talking? 
Yeah, I love you, because that's what you think. That's what we think. We don't know. We don't know. The truth is, the canon of the Old Testament was not codified by mainline rabbinic Judaism until after Christianity. Why was it only after Christianity? Because they were so ticked off about Christians using their Bible. So we don't know how many. If I'm talking about the Essenes, the people who created the Dead Sea Scrolls, how many, how many writings are we talking? Oh, geez, libraries full. Libraries. Books like this written over, you know, piled high, like my house. <laughs> so this whole idea is, though, a body of work that you can call the Hebrew Bible, but it's really Hebrew Bibles. Well, from that time, it would be quotes from the Septuagint, right? Oh, this is so good. Now, you're, you would assume that. Now, you know, I'm going to just say right now, you're right. You didn't know that you were right, but you were right because, uh, bless your heart. I, I didn't know that I was right. Huh? You didn't know. The quotes that come from chapters 5 and 6, FYI, use a lot of Greek terminology that is very common in the Greek form of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint. It's also called the LXX, meaning 70. <coughs> And I, I call it LXX because it's easier to write than Septuagint. This is a Greek form of the Old Testament written during the Alexandrian age or the, the Koine age of basically the Roman Empire. We know it's from the Septuagint because the terminology and phraseology and concepts are generally more Greekified than they are from the Hebrew Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not trying to go on a bunch of tangents today. The Hebrew... Bible was in existence at the time. There were Hebrew scriptures. Problem was, no one could read or write Hebrew. At least most people, most Jews couldn't. The phraseology and terms that they use are slightly different in some cases in the Hebrew Bible. Why? Because now, 2,000 years later, reconstructions of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written in Hebrew that we take to mean the Hebrew form of the Old Testament is slightly different. It's not always. And it doesn't change the root conceptual meaning. <laughs> Again, this doesn't change. But the literal words that are used are slightly different. In the case of chapters 5 and 6 in Hebrews, the author is using some very specific phraseology we'll get at in Greek in a, in a few minutes that comes directly from the, from the Septuagint. We know it's coming from that. So yes, the author is a Jew. He's familiar. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to the he part in a minute. He's familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And he's, he's obviously a learned Greek person and a Hellenistic Jew. And that's what I mean when I say <clears throat> Hellenistic, meaning Greek, Hellenistic Jew, by birth and training, because he, is, he knows Greek. The Greek of the Hebrew is excellent. The terminology is, is advanced. It's very, very well written. He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's obviously well-educated, and he uses a lot of um, Greek, not Hebrew references. Okay, what other evidence do you have about who wrote it? Is there anything else to say about it? This is a big one. Chat, uh, verse 11. Verse 11. Knows Jesus? He? Well, since we. Since we. Is it the royal we, or is it <laughs> like... I can't emphasize this enough. 
the writer of Hebrews is representing a community. It may have had multiple authors. Why is there no name attached to this so-called epistle? Because it was a corporate writing. A group of people set out. That's the, that's the evidence. And again, you can make any claim you want. My evidence is in verse 11, and again in chapter 6, verse 9, pronoun is we. We. We are writing these things. We want you to understand this. We are confident in better things for your case. The authors of Hebrews are plural. It is a group. A group of people are writing Hebrews. Okay. Who were they writing it to? Other Hebrews. What's that? Other Hebrews. Why do you think that? Well, you wouldn't write to a Gentile all about, you know, Melchizedek, because that literally has nothing, yeah. no part of their life at all. It's the old saying that if I want to make a case for something, go ahead, Mary. And <laughs> we go over their head. Exactly. Exactly. Know your audience, right? I always say, as you share the gospel, know your audience. If you're going to talk to a person who has never read the Bible and knows nothing about Jesus, the first thing you're going to probably not do is break open Ezekiel <laughs> in the original Hebrew and start quoting from it. Because why? Glazed over, eyes, eyes go dead, right? Roll back in the head, and then you've lost them. Know your audience. The reason this person is writing quotes from the Old Testament, writing about the priestly system, the Abrahamic covenant, one of two Abrahamic covenants, is because his audience obviously knows what he's talking about. Are they only Jews? Are they just Jews? Well, the Jewish Christians. Yes. Of Jew-ish Christians. What the heck is a Jewish Christian, Angela? <laughs> <laughs> Jewish people that have converted over to Christianity or believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. Does that happen? <laughs> All the time. What? Well, the first 12 disciples were Jews. Wait a minute. Jew. Wait a minute. I thought they were all Christian. Jesus was a Christian, wasn't he? <laughs> Head shaking no. What's that? I said it was a part of his name. <laughs> right? Exactly. See, Tim knows. You're all wrong. <laughs> this is what, this is exactly it. Well, what he's writing to the Jews, Jewish Christians, because they're having trouble separating what they grew up with to this new fangled belief system or a new style of relationship than what their Hebrew was. Because then when he talks to the Romans, he's talking, when Paul's talking to the Romans, he's using Roman stuff to convert, show them how they got to be a Roman Christian. One of the traps, yes, one of the traps we fall into in the 21st century is we impute our view of the world and our current history back on the first century. How many, this is not anti-Semitic, this is a fact, how many Jews today are the target of evang successful evangelism and it's working? How much are the Jews involved in Christianity today? Be, give me an honest answer. In Israel, there's a big movement. There, there's movements. There's Jews for yeah. Jesus and there's, you know, um, uh, you know <clears throat> um, Hebrews for, for uh, Mashiach and all that. 
the honest answer is very little. Yeah. Very little. And you just have to be honest with your answer here. Since 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, the Jews have not, as a general rule, have not had a big part of influence and participation in the Christian community. Okay? That's just a fact. But the reading I'm hearing here is very different than that. So this is where we have to be careful today that we don't impute what we think we know today on the past. This tells me in chapter 5, the Jews of the first century were involved in the Jesus movement. And in significant numbers that, enough of them were writing these very important documents to other large groups that were digesting these documents. So the audience is a group of people who grew up in a Jewish background who were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, the Romans, until about 65 AD, when Nero finally kind of flipped out, were convinced that Christians were just Jews, a, a branch of Judaism. And in fact, that is true. <laughs> That is true. But they saw them all as one group. Today we have two different names, Christians and Jews. In the time, it was just Jews who believed in Jesus. Okay? So, so again, as you read through the text, be careful you don't just assume like today is the way that things happened back then. Okay. What do you think, again, this ties into the why. What else do you know about this audience, and why do you think this is being written? What are the issues that seem to be facing the audience that this person feels compelled to write about? Seems like perhaps they've been backsliding a little bit. Ah, yes. <laughs> that never happens, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that? Well, they come right out and say it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've been believers so long. Verse 12, yep. you've been believers so long, you ought to be teaching others instead. <coughs> you need to be taught again. So they're stuck on the basics. They're stuck on the basics, but you have evidence right here that significant time has elapsed for them hearing the gospel. You think that does with comfort? Or goes along with it? Comfort or ang anguish? <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, it's, I, it's become so familiar, so comfortable that I kind of, that personally, occasionally I've backed off and mm -hmm. I know everything or I know enough. <coughs> um, I just quit search, I guess, until I woke up again. So much of it is about the, the sacrificial system. Ah, yes. That, that would have been, <coughs> Like, really neat if you were a, a Jew at that time. Okay, the high priest is going to go into the Holy of Holies and it's going to take care of my sin. But if, I'm a, if I believe in Jesus, I don't see this happening every year. And what if I sin again? Excellent. 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 This gets at this whole thing about your audience being patient with them. What do you expect them to think? What do you expect them to think? This guy shows up out of nowhere from a nothing family. Suddenly all these great claims are being made about him. I always thought the Messiah was going to be this guy who's going to 
be a king and military ruler and crush the Romans. Go ahead. Now, one thing I, I just happened to catch stuck on basics, it seems that perhaps some have even maybe walked away even because my translation says you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't even know the basics. It's like the, the, you're stuck on the basics, you don't even understand them or remember them. Well, it's always so easy to go back to what's familiar, right? <clears throat> They'd grown up, you know, they had a lot of rules that the Pharisees had put on them, you know, mm -hmm. about like the Sabbath and different things. And that was like, you know, sometimes that stuff's comforting, right? So then now you get thrown <laughs> yes. into a world with like basically no rules and you're like, oh, this is really scary because knowing that I could you know, only walk so many steps on this day, and I can, you know, and yeah. <clears throat> we have the luxury of looking back at history and saying, well, of course, Jesus, I mean, that only makes sense, but in the time, or at the time, how many more false messiahs have they seen come and go? You know, everybody was claiming to be this. It's huge. And so their skepticism is probably justified, and the reason, you know, the fact that it took many of them a long time to actually get there is just through their own discernment and figuring out, all right, was this guy the real deal? And I think also that they were expecting him to return fairly quickly and he had Right, <clears throat> right. They're like waiting for Jesus to come back and he's like, well, how come he hasn't come back yet? Do we miss it? Which is, which is why it took so long to get the word written. The end was imminent. It was, it's coming. The end is, the end is coming very soon. Get out there. <laughs> Don't take any extra cloaks or, or stabs or extra money bags. Get out there and preach the word. The end is coming. And I think what Mary said is, is exactly root here. And I think you have to remember too, it's, it's very easy for someone, if you have grown up in the church and you accept this as truth without question, to maybe not have patience with certain groups you, you know, were the people, the audience of this, developmentally challenged? They were obviously very smart human beings, right? The problem is what Mary and Lori are, are Lori, did I say Lori? <laughs> I can't even believe you. Edit. <laughs> they were very smart human beings. You better cut that out. They were very smart human beings. Thank you. That's it. I love you. All right. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't developmentally challenged. They were very smart. They, but it's hard for people to accept change. It's hard for people to accept change. If you've grown up in the Levitical priesthood as a Pharisee, Pharisees have the four pillars of Christianity. They had a focus on scripture and dedication to the law. They met in homes. They um, shared a meal with each other. And uh, they believed in the resurrection at the end times. But you've been growing up, and they met in homes. They met in home churches. That was, that was what Pharisees did. If you have grown up in the system your whole life, and you're being taught one thing about the view of the Pharisaic, you know, Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, and suddenly someone comes to you after 30, 40, 50 years of your life and tells you something that is radically different than you believed, 
maybe not different from what was preached originally, it's just you interpreted it wrong, what are you going to do? You're going to do exactly what you would expect a human being to do. They're going to resist it. And not out of hate and ignorance. Um, I think that's why they quote the Old Testament so much, to show them that like Jesus is the fulfillment of what you've already been studying, but you didn't necessarily put it together. You know, The authors know their audience. They know them. And they're trying to use the evidence that would make sense to them, that they would see as right and true. Well, the, <clears throat> something else that was going on here, you know, we, we talk about the backsliding and things. You know, this was a group of Jewish Christians who are starting to have second thoughts of, did we really get on the right train here or not? Maybe we need to go back. We need to go back to the old ways and this Jesus, he was a great guy and everything, but he may not have been who we thought he was. Where were they? In the middle of the Sinai Desert, about 20, 30 years in, eating quail and manna having to wait for Moses to go yell at a rock for water to come out of it. And they say to themselves, maybe we didn't have it so bad in Egypt. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe we didn't have it so bad in Egypt. Moabites are coming. The Ammonites are coming. A lot of ites are coming at us to attack us and kill us. We're dying. People are dying of plagues because of disbelief. How easy is it for us as human beings to look at all that and say, maybe it wasn't so bad in the past. Was it bad in the past? It was terrible. (laughs) It was horrible, but we just were humans. Well, they couldn't read, but they had memorized quite a bit of the Old Testament. Not all of them. Some of them could read. Most couldn't. Yeah, but most of them were memorized memorized tremendous amounts of scripture. That's right. And that's what they were always their reference for. Which had much better memories than me. Right, Lori? Okay. Chapter 6. I I don't know how that happened. Let's read chapter 6, verses 1 to 20. 1 to 20. Who would like to do that for us? Sure. Oh, okay. I was looking at your wife, but she was avoiding making eye contact. No, I was too slow on the drop. Go ahead. Thank you, sir. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repeating from the evil deeds and placing our faith in God. It's getting repenting. Um, You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring back the repentance of those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. 
Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us certain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Before we go on, chapter 6, verse 1. Did your translation not have the word repentance? No, I think it did. He just yeah, read it. I, um, it, it ended or did up, you Surely it? we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds. Okay, good. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure because it, it <coughs> kind of came across as maybe you, you interpreted that. Um, This gets at the next two things I want to talk about here, which is as you read the text and you're asking these questions and you're searching for the main issues, I want you to be thinking about the importance of accurate interpretation. Because this is not a, a grocery store list and it takes interpretation to understand the meaning, it's really important that we get it right. The first thing is I want is, and this will be something we do weekly. What are the tools I can use to interpret the text properly? And there is a proper way. Don't get me wrong. This is not the liberal, you know, modern Christian view of it, whatever it means to you is right. It isn't. <laughs> whatever you, whatever someone interprets from the text is not always right. There is a right answer. Consider using multiple translations of your English version of the Bible because they don't always say the same things. And sometimes, and, and again, I was about ready to launch into the New Century. That's yours, right? New Century version? What are you yeah, using? Right. New Living Translation. Okay, that's also a paraphrase. New Living and New Century are both paraphrases. Now, what I mean by that, again, this is important. There is no such thing as a literal translation of the Bible. All translators are traitors. Sorry if that upsets you. There's no way to accurately reproduce the exact meaning of the original text of a manuscript in another language in a one-for-one translation. I cannot take one word in Greek and translate to one word of English. I cannot take one sentence of Greek and translate to one sentence of English. The problem is, in order to make an accurate and faithful translation that is complete, your Bible would be 10 volumes bigger than this. Why? Because it takes a lot of English to, to explain what the Greek is trying to say here. Because of that, 
All translations are paraphrases to some extent. What is a paraphrase? A paraphrase means someone, very smart person, tried to, as hard as they could, sum up the root conceptual meaning into something that flowed in a one-for-one sentence-to-sentence version of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English. And most English translations do a faithful job of that. The problem is one single translation is not 100% accurate. You get about 80% of the meaning. Don't get me wrong. The root conceptual meaning is always there. And I think most English translations, except for the message, the message is junk, <laughs> are, are good. The problem is they're not 100%. They're about you know, somewhere between 60 and 80%. When I say a paraphrase, though, I mean something that is very paraphrased, something that tries to take as much of the original terminology out as possible to say, yo, you know, be doing good, be nice, love others, end of story. Well, if you paraphrase it too much, it's like 99% of the information is lost. The more you paraphrase something, the more the, the accurate information is lost. I'm not, I'm not dissing on the New Living Translation. In fact, I recommend it for people who are, who are giving the Bible to new Christians for the first time. I absolutely support it. The problem is, they are not meat. They're milk. The more you paraphrase, and this is the NLT and I would say the New Century, they, they fall more in this continuum of paraphrase. Something like the New American Standard, the New Revised Standard Version, are on the other end. And somewhere in the middle is the ESV, NIV, so on and so forth. I just want you to be aware. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. Get a more holistic view. You all have smartphones, right? You all have access to all of these translations for free, folks. Get, a, get used to reading the Bible from various translations and just get used to it. Why? because sometimes key things will be left out or translated in a way that may not be 100% of what you're trying to get at. This is really important. So I use the NIV for my Sunday morning. I use the Greek New Testament as my root. Don't worry, I'm not asking you to do that. <laughs> you get the blue letter, that's awesome. Blue letter will translate it. Um, I use the English Standard Version for the commentary, because I think the English, uh, the ESV is, is a fairly good reproduction. My college Bible was the NRSV. Problem with the NRSV is that the editors went to great pains to make it, how do I say this, um, politically correct. And in thus doing, made a very accurate representation of the original language, but then they corrupt it with trying to say, force things like brothers and sisters, men and women, when that was not necessarily meant, and that's certainly not the Greek. So I'm just saying, no translation is perfect, no translation is complete. Use different English translations. Okay, enough well, of that. Plus you also, the culture is first century compared to us today, 21st century. Uh, there is so much difference. And it's a Middle East Hebrew or Arabic area mm -hmm. that uh, they think so much different than we do. Yeah. Like with the idea that women weren't important. Today, yep. that gets all bent on. Of course. That's, that's another good point. And again, that's a tangent. I agree 100%. Um, <laughs> this was a male-dominated culture. And you just have to remember that. That's the audience, and that's the author. 
The, the next thing I want you to remember is this. This is a big one as you start to become mature, as you start to eat meat, <laughs> firm food, as it's called, stereos is the Greek, stereos uh, brotus, firm, f firm or, or solid food, is that you need to start looking for places where the enemy is going to start to try and throw non-believers and new believers off. 616, six right? Get this right. No, 6-6 six, six is a doozy. 6-6 six, six is a doozy. Identifying potentially controversial passages in which you can go, ding, 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 I can see right here where some people will maybe misinterpret this and use this to completely go off on a tangent <clears throat> to distract and divert Christians from the truth. Now, with those warnings, teach me Hebrews chapter 6. Who wrote it? We know that. Who did they write it to? What were the issues going on in the community? They were, they were full of doubt. Yes. Well, and what came to my mind was <clears throat> even when Jesus was still alive, there was doubt. Even, yeah. even uh, John the Baptist had his doubt, <clears throat> and uh, he had to go be, uh, you know, um, re-encouraged. Like, just look at all the uh, evidence that Jesus has. So even when he was still alive. So imagine you have doubt when he's right there physically in, in form versus after he has uh, resurrected and ascended to heaven. So, um, and uh, maybe some people thought that they actually... Wait, lost. you're saying John the Baptist wasn't even convinced that Jesus was who he said he was? He was at first, but then he lost it. And What? Yeah. I just, I can't believe all the things I'm being told today. <laughs> What's up? What's going on, cousin? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What else? That's great, by the way. Maybe some people thought that they lost their faith, like there's no coming back. And they had to encourage them that, I don't think this deals with you. So trying to reaffirm their, their yeah. faith yeah. that uh, you haven't lost it yet. So you haven't gone too far. Yeah. They weren't moving beyond the basics. And he's not saying that the basics aren't important. Yep. But to mature in your faith, you have to get beyond the basics. Yeah. Look, well, people who only understand, you know, I like to make this comment. I am very happy you are all here. The fact that you are so interested in the Word of God that you have made an effort, even through breaking of limbs, to make it to this class. To understand the Word of God is extremely commendable. Extremely commendable in your discipleship. I like to tell people that you do not have to understand how food nourishes your body. What do you have to do? Eat it. Eat it. You just have to eat it. Folks, you just have to accept the word that Jesus is your Messiah and faithfully, faithfully follow him obediently. And you're in. And you're in. You are, your salvation is assured. You do not have to know that the, you know, the, whether the, trans, you know, the Eucharist is a, a transubstantiation or, or consubstantiation of the body of Christ, right? You don't have to know all of that stuff. If you want to know that, that will make this a lot more meaningful, but you don't have to move beyond the basics necessarily in order to attain your salvation. The problem is what, though, in this group? Was it just that they were getting stuck on basics or what? They were turning away or... It was this. Going back. 
it's kind of like I went to an Amway conference. Don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing on Amway. I had a friend invite me because he wanted me to be a part of the organization. And, uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the speakers there made this comment. He said, you're, either, you're, either, you're, you're always going somewhere in your car, right? You're always traveling somewhere. You're either going forward or you're going backward, right? Well, in some ways it's true. Your actions, your, your progress on your journey through life, you're going to be advancing down one path or the other. There's always a path you're following. This idea that you just kind of are a parked car is not really true in life. You're, you're either advancing towards something or away from something. In this case, there really is no such, no such truth as you can just accept the basics and be good. I'm good. I'm good. Why? Because if you're not moving towards maturity in Christ, where are you moving? Away. This is, this is the threat that Paul talked about, about the dragon and God vomiting, you know, the lukewarm Christians out of his mouth, right? You become lukewarm because you backslide, because you start to say, I don't care, you become apathetic. I, I make a big case about apathetic Christians. Once you get to the point where you're like, I'm good, I got an hour today, I'll go listen to Dan, get my hour of, you know, spiritual goodness, and I'll go home. What's the problem there? And eventually, as the author of Hebrews says in the beginning, what's going to end up happening to you? Inevitably, always happens. Backslide into what? The S word. The other Sin. S word. Sin. Backslide. That's because we become, we become more worldly yeah. and justify our sin. That is, you know, it's no big deal. That's it. You know, I'm a believer, That's and it. yeah, I probably should do this, but I want to do this, so I'm going to do what I want to do. You're allowing the, the world to affect your actions and thoughts and beliefs more than what you allow God to. And you only get two hours of Sunday morning versus the rest of the, the week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make it. When I, first, when I first started trying to learn Greek and study it, I thought mm, an hour a week is probably good. <laughs> wow, was I grossly wrong about that. The problem is... It's like learning a new language. How many of you have tried to learn a new language? It's like learning a new language. It is. Well, sorry. <laughs> I'm challenged about myself today. Uh, it's all Greek. It's all Greek to me. It's all Greek to you. It's like learning a language in high school. If you don't stick with it and practice it, what happens to it? It's perishable. How many of you remember all the French and Spanish? you learned in high school if you didn't continue. Or German. I learned more German yeah. from Hogan's Heroes than I did for my German class. I love this. That's so good. You got her because she loves that shit. You don't practice it. It goes away. It decays. Look, you're a human being. You are not a computer. You don't just look at something once and it becomes a part of you and you never forget it. If it's not being trained daily, hourly, it's going to decay. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, faith is an active exercise, a daily training to maintain and grow your faith. Why? Because without it, you will lose it. And not even, don't even worry about salvation. It's your faith. It's your belief. It's your active and living faith. You'll lose it if you don't train it constantly, lovingly. It goes away. I think that's why a lot of the New Testament authors were into like athletic metaphors. Oh, yeah. Yes, I love this. There's soon Athleo and Athleo, and there is um, Gumnazo. 
Gymnazo is where we get gymnasium. It derives from the Greek word for nude, because why? Athletes would exercise in the nude, but it came to mean a physical exercise. So gumnazo, which is the word used in Hebrew 6, means a physical training or exercise that happens. If you want to be an athlete and you want to go to the Olympics, how often do you have to train? Once, one day a week? Seven. <laughs> Just an hour on Sunday morning. <laughs> Athleo is this idea of competing or race. Now this is, the, this is a favorite of Paul. He loves Athleo and soon Athleo. You have to compete, you have to strive, you have to work, you have to train daily, hourly, minute by minute. What's happening? How can we apply these learnings to our lives? This is the most important one. If you don't do all of that, what happens? You get fat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get out of shape, you get atrophy, you get spiritual atrophy. What happens when astronauts come back from space? who has spent a year in space. Do you know they how they- lose muscle mass. Yeah. yeah. No gravity pulling on their bones. And so what happens? They carry them off in stretchers sometimes, right? I'm so glad I have a, a fellow science teacher. <laughs> this is awesome. They, they can't get up, they can't even move. They try and exercise in space, it's not the same. You know, you see them on these little bikes or you know, they're doing this like exercise, you know, rubber band thing. They come back to Earth and they're jelly. You have to exercise your faith like you do your body, and if you don't do it regularly, then guess what? You get weak. What else do you get from all of this? To me, it seems like you know, the big picture with, with the repetitiveness and the commitments, it's, it's a relationship with God. What's, what's important? How do you have a relationship? Yeah. It's the daily talking. It's the daily studying. It's the constant. You can't have... You can't have a relationship with your spouse or with a friend if you never talk or you never see each other, or you never communicate. Well, if you don't have the basic central theme of do I really believe what I believe to be true? And if you really do, I mean, if you really are sold out for God or Christ, you would, you would do everything you can to, I want to eat this stuff up, I want to be with them, I want to read about them. And if you don't, well, going back to your audience, these were people that were, their whole culture was around the temple yep. and things that they could see and touch and feel and smell. And all of a sudden, oh, you're supposed to have this relationship with, with Christ, but he's risen, but he died and you can't see him. And there's no priests out there doing you know, nice visual, yeah. tactical sacrifices. Yeah. How, do you, how do you keep up that relationship? Love this. This is it. It's hard, right? And I'm going to make a connection between what Mary said a long time, uh, like an hour ago, and what you just said, Roger, which is, at some level, if you aren't training your, yourself daily, and you don't really, what is that saying? If the fruit that you're producing sucks, or you're not producing any fruit, at some point you have to ask yourself, did you ever really believe this? Did you ever really believe this? And this is the tangent that people want to go down. Were you ever, can you lose your salvation? Ugh, I hate when people argue about that. The, the verbs used in the Greek here are active present tense. If you are faithfully following present tense and, and being obedient to the word of God, you are saved. If you are rejecting, present tense, the word of God, 
and are not producing present tense fruit, that is evidence that what? You don't, you don't believe. You don't really believe. And thus, you are doomed to? Hell. Is that real? <laughs> Hell? Yes, of course it's real. You are doomed to, to judgment. I don't know about you. I don't want to be doomed to judgment. <laughs> and I believe this. So that's what I'm getting at. And again, it's, it's loving and faithfulness. The last thing I want to leave you with is this idea of being patient and loving. So a couple of the words that are used here in the Greek, let me see here. Um, uh, let's see. Metriopatheo. Metriopatheo is only used once, and it means basically a controlled or measured gentle attitude towards the spiritually weak and, and the people who are basically ignorant of the word. What it gets at is, don't be indignant about non-believers. Don't be all ticked off that they're not getting it right away. What is it saying? Don't be impatient. That's what it, matriopatheo, don't be impatient. Be patient, <clears throat> be loving, be gentle. It takes time. Folks, I totally get it. I know people in my own personal life who I have been trying to lovingly preach and demonstrate the gospel for decades, and it takes time, and some of them are still not there. Well, that doesn't mean I'm going to burn them to the ground. It, and you are not going to save them. Who saves? Jesus does. Well, that's the thing. We have to be faithful in our own faith and faithful in telling others about Christ, and it's really a decision that they have to make. You can't make it for them. And once, I mean, if you remember where you were before you were saved and before Christ came in your, your life, thank, thank you, Jesus, for those people who were patient with me all these years. You know? Um, I love yeah. it. It's, we just have to be, be loving and faithful and patient, like you said, and truth and love, and present arguments. And really, I think this exercise of helping other people is an exercise in our own faith and really kind of helps us to grow as well, find yep. maybe uh, blind spots in our own faith, not walk. So keep on doing that. Find those people who don't have the faith as you do, then I mean, it really helps you to grow your own faith and uh, be reestablished. You wanted to know how it is. I'm sweating. This is like a Southern revival uh, in, in person. Uh, I'm all worked up. This is, this is awesome. I think this was a great conversation. The good news, maybe for you, is that we're going to continue this next week as we go through Hebrews. The, the, uh, the, we're going to talk a lot next week about Melchizedek and what that priestly or kingly priestly system means. All right. Thank you for joining us. See you next week.